Hey everybody, welcome back to Meta Perspective. And today we have an awesome guest, uh, Daniel Ingram, MD, who is the author of Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. Welcome, Daniel. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks. It's it's great to talk to you again, man. Um, so we're gonna go right into it today, man. I got I got uh, a lot of interesting questions, and uh, we'll see where it goes. Great. Um, so so people listening uh, are gonna be. Uh, on kind of like all levels, right? There's going to be people deep in their path. There's going to be people just hearing about awakening and meditation for the first time, or or maybe really considering it for the first time as something um, that's like a, a serious topic, I guess. Um, so for people listening, um, and this is very broad, but I know you're a master wordsmither. So what what is what is mindfulness? So it's one of these things that gets debated a lot, but the basic thing is being able to be present to what's going on. And some people would add in all kinds of additional qualifiers or special stuff onto that, but it's basically being here now and attuned to one's sensate environment now. And some people would add in nod and judgmentally, but then that precludes the possibility of being mindful of judgment, which would be a little weird considering judgment is a frequent part of our experience. And so to be able to be mindful of judgment and to be able to mind, be mindful of reactions. And typically this is applied to the four foundations of mindfulness to get kind of Buddhisty about it. So you would notice physical sensations, the sensations of the sense doors, uh, you know, sights, sounds, physical sensations, tastes, smells, thoughts, um, each thing so you can be mindful of. And then this is also applied for the, to the quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. So, and this usually is called something called Vedana. And that's a Pali word that basically means that degree of pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality. So you can notice whether or not things feel good or not, or just kind of feel sort of neutral. And then there's states of mind and feelings. And so you can notice your emotions, you can notice states of mind, and you can notice other subtle qualities of experience, like how you perceive space or what curiosity is and things like that. So, so there are these second, these later two categories. And basically it's, you can pay attention to everything and are you paying attention to it? And are you able to notice what it is? So it's, it's also, kind of implicit in it is the ability to kind of identify things, right? So to sense that there's not just a, some sensate qualities, but there's a sense of recognition of what these things are. Is this a physical sensation? Is this a mental sensation? Is this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Is this a thought? Is this a feeling? Is this a mental image? Is this an intention to do something? Is this a mental impression that followed something? Is this a memory? Is this an anticipation? what it actually is the sensation that's going on then. And that's how I think of mindfulness. And other people might have subtly or somewhat different uh, definitions of it, but that's the one I use. Sure. And um, another kind of, uh, you know, loaded term, what is awakening? Yeah. So again, this one has a lot of controversy about it. And there's lots of different definitions. These the question of what is awakening has been debated for thousands of years. Who is awakened? What are the criteria? How does it change their behaviors? How does it change emotions? How does it change perception? How does it change the sense of self or non-self or true self? Or 
um, does one does an awakening involve more of an appreciation of emptiness or luminosity? And th this is an old debate. Are there levels to it, or does it just happen suddenly? Is it relatively accessible, or is it only available to rare people? These are all hotly debated topics. I will give you my take as one opinion on one dude on the internet. Take it for what it's worth. And my opinion on this, I'm pretty heavily informed by Theravadan Buddhism, though I've definitely studied quite a number of traditions as well. You can see a few books back there. And um, so, uh, and lots of teachers who've had various takes on this issue. And I've studied with Zen people and Vedantists and Tibetans and um, it had contact with plenty of people on a lot of different paths, some of the Abrahamic traditions and shamanic stuff and all kinds of things. So, um, and they each have their own takes on this, but you start noticing some common themes. So you start noticing an increased sense of presence. And this is kind of a perennialist take on awakening. Forgive me for those who don't like perennialism. Um, so you will start to notice an increased sense of presence to this moment. You will start to notice people talking about something of dissolution of exactly where the sense of self is. And as those boundaries dissolve, some people will interpret that as they start becoming everything. And some people will start to interpret that as they start becoming nothing or realizing that they've always been kind of everything or nothing. And then you get these two basic schools, the, the true self people and the no self people. And the true self people tend to talk about a, a stable, luminous, divine all ground or something like that. And the emptiness people tend to talk about ephemerality, transience, causality, things happening neutrally, there being no true past, um, no substantial present and no true future. There's just this changing immediate moment. And I can see pros and cons to all of those descriptions, really from a pragmatic point of view, depending on kind of where you are in the path, what your goals are, what your imbalances or strengths might be. And each of these kinds of teachings, I think pragmatically can be useful for pointing to various aspects of experience that might help a practitioner with whatever their goals are. So um, the things I've noticed for myself is an increased sense of just things being here and present. Um, it look, seems that there's generally a moderately deactivated default mode network so the sense of the default now, be, now being basically to just have the room be and everything in it, including this body and thoughts, just showing themselves where they are, an increased sense of things happen happening naturally and causally on their own, an increased sense that things just perceive themselves where they are. So these sensations are just here. Those sensations are just there. These sensations are just here. An increased sense of perspective that allows thoughts and physical sensations of feelings to be both perceived very clearly, but also be a very small part of what's going on. So they're able to give their message without becoming overwhelming things or causing um, bodily reactions, you know, based on thoughts or feelings that um, might be out of proportion or less than was needed to transmit a skillful message of, hey, something's going on, maybe you should do something about this. And those are some of the things that I myself have noticed as well as an increased ability to naturally perceive the, the transient kind of frame-like nature of reality um, from a digital point of view, as well as the analog nature of reality, sort of the, the flowing, changing, morphing aspect of transience, as well as appreciating what people are talking about when they talk about a, a luminous, stable presence. Although 
um, that that was compelling for a while. And now I see that even all the sensations that that made it that up were also transient. And so depending on how you want to look at this and what kind of tradition you're coming from, if you're coming from more of a Christian tradition, you might, you know, think of this as like, you know, all knowledge is God's, all power is God's, you know, um, no will but thine, um, that kind of thing. And the dissolution of the sense of boundaries of a self that could have been a separate thing from God. Or if you're more a Buddhist-y kind of person, all this is luminous transient emptiness, just aware of itself where it is in the seeing, just the seen, no separate self that's observing it, no separate doer, agent, controller that stands, you know, that pretends to stand outside of causality. And if you're coming from more of a true self point of view, then the sense that this is all the luminous natural dance of the divine or something. So those are all various ways, each of which I can see the value in, and each of which is getting at something important that can help not only um, inspire, but also point the way of how we can examine these sensations that are occurring right here to notice that these aspects are true. So uh, I definitely come down on the essentialist point of view on this. While we clearly have our interpretive overlays that can be a bit constructionist, I truly do believe that really reality is transient, that it happens causally in a natural way, even if we don't have access to all of that causality, that this true moment is the only moment you can find an experience and one can notice that thoughts of a past and a future and of a stable self are just transient things that occur now. I think these are actually just true and not negotiable. So I, I think these are these are things we can recognize. However, the way we describe this in our conceptual overlay might vary a lot depending on our biases, tradition, personality, culture, language, et cetera. That was kind of a long answer. Was that helpful? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's you know, you always help and and I think bring um, context. So I think it's very clear for people. So I always appreciate um, you have a, you have a very good sense of of framing things. So I, I appreciate that. I think it makes things very clear. Um, so you <laughs> you signed your book as the Arhat, mastering the core teachings of the Buddha. You signed it, uh, the Arhat Daniel Ingram. Um, so. What is an arhat? This is also hotly debated. So this is that was the kind of move that definitely really inspired some people and also really pissed some people off and then definitely confused some others and other people were delighted by the sense of certainty that that provided for them. So it, it was a complicated move from a lot of points of view, socially, politically, culturally, religiously. Um, and Arhats are defined various ways. Even if you look within the Pali canon or its commentaries, you will find various definitions of what an arhat is and various criteria of things they could feel or couldn't feel, of things they could do or couldn't do, of thing the degree to which their suffering is reduced, um, and, and all of this. So it's a pretty controversial topic. So recognize that when I give you my definition, I at least am being extremely explicit about what I mean when I use the word. Um, it should also be mentioned if you look at like the Tibetan literature, they tend to use the arhat as like, yeah, those arhats are pretty cool, but they're really just kind of children on the path and really us bodhisattvas are so much superior. So they they kind of say, to, yeah, arhat's neat, but then what we do is, is vastly better. So it's used as kind of an advertising 
foil or almost like straw man argument for why the Mahayana is better than the Vajra, you know, you know, better than the Hinayana or whatever they want to say. So just this word gets used a lot of different ways. And then Zen kind of just basically just like threw it out. They're like, we're done with this thing. It's too complicated. There's too much baggage and overlay. People like obsess about the stuff and we don't like any of that. It's more complicated than that. And so they were a kind of a reform tradition that looked at the way they would describe awakening and basically tossed out all of the the Theravada stuff and just substituted words like Kensho and Satori, which are then unbelievably vaguely defined as is their typical non-mappy, non-criteria-based style. And and then the Tibetans went into this and they're like, no, 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 all these layers of bodhisattvas and then are there nine or 10 or 17 or whatever. There's a whole lot of different ways of describing all the different types of bodhisattvas and their grades and stages. So all of the Buddhist traditions have have looked at the question of what is an awakened being? How do we define them? What kind of language are we going to use? And even some of the, the Orthodox people who don't like the way I use my language, even though redefining arahat seems to have been going on since the beginning. Um, and they don't like it, but I've had conversations with some of them and they say, yeah, but some of the other criteria, like, you know, they'll die within however many days of attaining our hotship if they don't join the Buddhist Theravada order or whatever. They'll be like, yeah, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so, so even some of them will say, yeah, no, you're wrong, but some of this other stuff is wrong too. And so we all kind of pick and choose our favorite definitions. Okay. That long qualifier out of the way, here's the way I use the term. And so now at least you have a sense that this is just one of many possible ways to use it. The way I use this, and this is based on my own experience. So I went through a series of what appeared like quantum leaps of perception of the no self impermanence, suffering-ish, transient, luminous nature of phenomena that seemed to be like layers of mind, layers of mind, layers of mind, where all of a sudden would flash onto what appeared to be a new understanding where there was reduced suffering and more clarity and a sense of things, just having a sense of rightness and, and proper perception to them. It's, it's kind of a subjective feeling, but it was the feeling that, that would ar- arise. And finally, there was a layer after years of practice that arose and it was like, this is just it. And I've had that impression now for 18 and a half years. This happened in 2003, sometime in April. And since then, I've had the sense, okay, that's this is just clarity. These things are just clear. They are just showing themselves now as they are. So the sense that there was a special center point in here somewhere that was truly doing things has gone. And now the intention stream that just arises causally that seemed to be pretending to be a doer is now just naturally perceived at baseline. It's just a naturally arising stream of intentions. So the intentions that always seem to to be a doer are now perceived much more clearly, and they're perceived to just be transient things that couldn't be a stable doer. And they also clearly arise causally and naturally as the universe just unfolds. And they clearly are not a separate entity that stands outside of causality with a will. So that sense is gone. And the sensations that made them up are much more clearly perceived. And with that clear perception comes the end of that illusion. So... The next thing is there's, there are these mental impressions that follow sensations that are what you can then remember and operate on conceptually. So like if I snap my fingers and then I recall that sound of the snap, that sound of the snap that was being replayed happened almost immediately after the snap. And then that's the, the slide you or the recording you your mind looks at again when it wants to remember 
snap sound. And so it had seemed that since these sensations kind of appear over here, that this was the real knowing of phenomena, that the snap itself was not the knowing, that the, the crude mental impression, which is really a pretty crude mental impression, was the real knowing. That illusion is now gone, naturally, just at baseline. Um, and so there's the snap and then the mental impression of the snap. And they're clearly two different things. This clearly follows that one. This clearly arises causally. That clearly arises causally. Neither are anything other than just phenomena being aware where they are. So the sense of a separate knower or watcher is gone. And there's just a bunch of sensations that clearly used to make up that illusion that are now more clearly perceived. And consequently, they're just seen to be sensations that were pretending to be a watcher. And then there were sensations that were pretending to be a stable self. They were pretending to be a beer, something that could be, not a beer, as in, you know, like, you know, yeah. pop open a cold one. And so <laughs> they, they, um, and so the sensations of a beer was actually made up of this like familiar sensations of skin and eyes and mental images of self and intentions and sinuses and face and back of head. And it was just this sort of mishmash of a bunch of sensations that were all totally transient. that just knew themselves where they were, like all other sensations, like all these colors out in the room and everything. And so the sense of a stable something that, that existed from one moment to the next as a coherent entity, that is now gone. And so it's clear all the sensations that used to make up that illusion. And it was just through really basically learning to pay attention to each of these as clear things. Oh yeah, now I'm more clear about that. This really is just sensations of skin or pressure or warmth or air in nostrils or whatever that I was taking to be a true stable observer, doer, knower, controller, beer, but which actually weren't. And so from a meditative point of view, it's actually an oddly simple game and people make this all mysterious. And I get why it can be mysterious because they're weird, energetic and perceptual and magical shifts and transformations and whatever that can occur that can all be very wild. And we can talk about that stuff, but from a very simple point of view, if you just get, get good at noticing the intentions that subtly proceed and monitor actions, you know, going along in an in intention stream to move your hand, to move your hand back, you know, to say a word, to say another word that I'm about to say word. And then I didn't say word, but then I said word, that feeling of like pressure or motivation or something, that's an intention. And you can just no learn to notice those same with mental impressions and then play back that sense of snap in your head. And then notice that that mental impression that you're playing back, actually the first version of it occurred right after that snap. And so you start to notice mental impressions are not you, intentions are not you. None of these sensations are a stable you. I mean, they all are from a conventional point of view, sure. But from an sort of an existential point of view, obviously not. And this becomes more and more clear just by paying attention to each of these categories of sensations that appear to have been a self. And when this finally, locks in and the thing flips over and all of the sensations that appeared to be a self are just interpreted or perceived clearly as just more naturally occurring immediate transient sensations, then that is what I call our hotship. And it's been very, very satisfying. It reduced a substantial amount of suffering. It appears to be very straightforwardly clear. It, it meets well with good first principle assumptions. It doesn't need a lot of woo woo to make sense of it. And it's also points the way to how to tell other people to do it. So it's, it's a straightforward thing with just like, if you have a better microscope, you perceive 
you know, germs better. And if you have a better telescope, you perceive stars better in the same kind of way. If you just learn to pay better attention to these things, you'll perceive them better. And at some point you go, oh, wait a second. Oh yeah. They're just naturally occurring transient now things. And uh, for a more simpler question, why did you do it? Why did you sign the book? I mean, you intentionally did it. Yeah. So I got really sick of people not talking about this stuff. Uh, for whatever reason, people talking about it in code and with fancy hats and fancy titles and, oh, they're on the front cushions, so they must know something and all of that. I was just like, come on, kids, can you can you do this or not? Like, if I went up to a guitar teacher and I said, well, what do you teach? Well, that can, I'm pretty good at, you know, leads, but, you know, not as good as classical. And, you know, I studied with this teacher and I can do this and they could demonstrate what they could play on guitar. I'd be like, okay, you're a teacher I could study from. But in the meditation world, it was almost never like that, right? There are a few, but back when I started, it was almost nobody would, but they would hint and there would be like rumors and backroom whispering and maybe they're this, maybe they're that. And I don't know. And someone said this, which may, you know, it's just like, God, that is so gamey and bizarre to me. Like, let's just be straight forward about this. This is just a, a technical skill. Why can we not just talk about it like anything else? And back in the day when I would read the old text, it was like, you know, so-and-so is an arahat, so-and-so is an anagami, it's the stage just below our hardship. So-and-so has powers, so-and-so is really good at concentrating. And that was just there. And everybody, be, you know, says, what well, was the Buddha who designated this you know, these people is having that. He made the call. Well, it's not true, actually. There are plenty of cases where someone just made the call. This is what I got. This is what I can do. This is what I know. And people are like, all right with that. Um, yeah. and, and so, you know, it doesn't mean everybody's going to be honest about that or, or, or accurate. Sure, I get people get this wrong. And some people think I've gotten this wrong. Okay, I hear it. But I'm oddly satisfied with my practice. If I've gotten this wrong, it's a delightfully wonderful, amazingly clear way to be wrong. Um, so so the re that was one of the reasons I did it. And also because um, I don't like the taboo around this stuff. So one of the things I'm working with with the EPRC project, the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium, the fact that there's a taboo around this stuff means plenty of ordinary people when they get into this territory, they can't talk about it. They can't talk about it at work. They certainly wouldn't want to tell a psychiatrist about this stuff right? Because God knows what might happen. And yeah. that's just a problem, right? If people are doing the practices that lead to awakening, we should be able to talk about awakening and the weird stuff that can happen along the path as well. And so I think the general taboos to not be talking about straightforward experiences and the results of practice, good, bad, and otherwise, that that's just not helpful, particularly when these practices and psychedelics and hot yoga and all these you know mindfulness practices are scaling so rapidly. That just seems incredibly bizarre to have it be all taboo and not be able to have straightforward conversations between consenting adults. You know, so yeah. So yeah, I just I wanted mean, to to you know buck the trend and actually go back to original stuff. So if you go back. You can find books that are signed by the Arhat, this or so and so. So, for example, one of my favorite books is a commentary called the Vimudi Maga, is signed by the Arhat Upatisa. And, you know, that was transcribed that way for, you know, almost 2,000 years. And they clearly didn't have a problem with that. Yeah, it's about 2,000 yeah. years now. And so, yeah. um, you know, and they seemed to think this was a good idea. And, and even the early Buddhist Sangha, when they got together and wrote down the Pali Canon, they said, you know, this was attended by however many arhats, hundreds of arhats. And, um, you know, they, they were comfortable doing those kinds of things back then. And, and so if they thought it was healthy and reasonable, why can't we do what they thought was healthy and reasonable? Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I commend you for 
you know, doing something you believe in that way. And I, in my opinion, I think it probably has been helpful for a lot of people and um, has made it a little bit less mystical and more practical. And, you know, hence the uh, prag- pragmatic Dharma movement. Yeah, um, some yes, some no. So it freaks some people out. Some people just hate this. They hate it not being taboo. They hate the notion of someone doing this that wasn't them. They hate the notion of someone doing it outside of a tradition they couldn't control. They hate the notion of someone not applying all of their favorite you know, criteria that they happen to like out of the canon, some of which is even contradictory. They you know, they just get incredibly angry about this. And so there's, there's a faction of various strains of orthodoxy that I just annoyed the crap out of. And I get that. So, so if, if you choose to do this, if, if you're making decisions about whether or not to disclose your own attainments or how, how to use language regarding this, definitely look up both the risks and the benefits and the alternatives, because there are risks and benefits to all of the strategies. And just make sure you're going in eyes open so you make good choices. Um, you will definitely attract some people when you advertise in this kind of way, and you will definitely get some enemies. That is a guarantee. And as we know, the internet is not the nicest of places. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, yeah, 21st century, that's, uh, it, you know, there's no, uh, there's no uh, kind of, I don't know, <laughs> rationality, actually, <laughs> that I can see. Um, but, um, you know, speaking of the, of that, you kind of, you kind of brought um, the maps into like a pop culture scene. Um I mean, people had been talking about it, uh, you know, like Jack Cornfield, but I think you really brought it to, I mean, even younger generations like myself. And again, I had a similar experience uh, to you where, you know, I'd been, you know, on the path doing intense meditation, some retreats and having other kind of bizarre awakening experiences, uh, even aside from that, and then involved in that. And I didn't come into the maps until I was like, you know, 15 or 16 years. <laughs> and I had noticed like, oh my God, this is, you know, part of something. This is normal kind of thing. Um, and this is part of the path. This, you know, wasn't a digression or, or you know, what have you. Um, so, you know, you have the maps and, and what's called the progress of insight. So could you define that for people? Sure. So this is a map that comes out of the you find its prototypical form in something called the Patisambi Damago, which is part of the Kudaka Nikaya, which is part of the original Pali Canon. Right? So sorry, I'm getting all fancy at this point. And then the Abhidhamma, which is analytical books of like analysis of reality and experience and psychology is kind of Buddhist technical psychology and phenomenology. That's one of the three baskets of the Pali Canon, the old texts that the Theravada teachings were written down in. And they, you find the maps in their full form there. And they're talking about a ster- series of 16 stages that are then elaborated on in the commentaries, starting with the Vimudimaga and then going on to the Vasudhimaga. And I think some other commentaries as well. But you, you, you find a series of 16 stages where basically, and, and I'll give you a really quick rundown. The first one is mind and body. We're able to see thoughts as thoughts. Before this, people think their thoughts are theirs. They're contracted into their thoughts. They can't have an objectivity on their thoughts. And when you get to mind and body, you can actually look at your thoughts as objects. Then you can see, go ahead. I just want to interrupt you very shortly and just say that's exactly kind of, you know, part of the the labeling of this channel, right? That you have to kind of go meta 
So yeah. that's almost a meta perspective. It is definitely a meta perspective, right? So rather than being caught in thoughts, we can see thoughts as objects and then physical sensations as objects. And you can begin to see the relationship, the cause and effect of this. A physical sensation will lead to a thought. A thought will lead to a bodily reaction. You think of someone you love and you have a certain feeling. You think of someone you don't like and you have a certain feeling. You can start to watch the intricate causality or cause and effect of this. And as you start to notice each of these sensations interacting in these very straightforward and ways you're familiar with, but you start to really see the nuts and bolts of it, the, the moment to moment of it, the pulse of it, you start to notice the three characteristics. And the three characteristics are suffering, impermanence, and no self, that these things seem to rise on their own, that they're too transient to be a self. And there's something kind of irritating about this process of change when something's trying to create a stable self out of a changing world. And then if you get good enough at noticing all the fine particulars of that, you can get to the kind of peak experiences that the maps would call the arising and passing away. Um, and these are like conversion experiences, peak experiences, kundalini awakenings, energetic openings, seeing vibrations. It can be rapturous, blissful, frightening. It, it can happen a whole lot of strange ways. Kriyas, spontaneous movements, odd, bright white lights, magical powers, or none of those, maybe just subtle tingles. And that was the whole thing, right? So there's a, a very wide range of the ways this can present. It literally could be a whole podcast. And after that, after one comes off the spiritual high, one starts to get to the spiritual low, and this is the hero's journey stuff. So we body can start to become vague or start to dissolve or even seem to tuning to the ends of phenomena. Reality can be disappearing. It can be hard to focus. It can get kind of wide, diffuse. And then that can cause some fear and some sense of misery or sadness. And then what's called disgust and then desire for deliverance, a kind of a turning away, a, ugh, you know, and then something called reobservation, which is sort of a contracted kind of not nice, sometimes very not nice stage. And then suddenly, weirdly enough, out of this kind of claustrophobic, irritated contraction can cause this fluxing out into open, expansive equanimity. And then there we can see last core processes that seem to be a self. And finally, we can flip over to stages of awakening. Okay, so that was a super quick summary. And but and there this map, you can actually find variants of it that look very similar in a whole lot of traditions. And the people who don't like perennialism are, are not going to like me here, but the people who do are going to appreciate that in some ways, I think the Theravadan Buddhists were very good embryologists of the development of attention, the stages of the, the development of from this to that, to be able to see this. And because you can see this, you experience that, that then naturally leads to this. So they have a very precise map of the development of attention and what happens. And it has all kinds of emotional and energetic and perceptual and existential implications that are reproducible. So I was going on retreats and having these stages happen to me before I'd ever run into the maps. And when I ran into the maps that exactly describes, not some retrofitted, oh, kind of, and I just really had to fit it into yeah. a box that didn't fit in. No, it, it exactly yeah. describes like, the sequence, the stuff. Yeah. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Somebody knew the stuff. Oh my God. Wow. And they didn't tell me. And I, I was going through this stuff since I was a kid and nobody told me like, that's ridiculous. And so I've been excited about telling people about this tech ever since, because it just blew my mind and they, they got a lot of stuff right now. That doesn't mean these maps are perfect or that everything happens exactly the way they say they will. There's a lot of variance and variability. So people who want to fix the, fix this into tight orthodox boxes of certain constrained sets of 1500 year old phenomenology, don't obviously see how this meets with Christian maps or Sufi maps or Hindu maps or other shamanic maps or hero's journey maps or archetypal maps or fractal maps or whatever. There's all kinds of different variants yeah. of these. 
but for those who are willing to be a little more inclusive in their phenomenology and actually just observe what happens when people go on a 10 day meditation retreat, yeah. what's the sequence? And just look at the range of that and build it up empirically from what happens when people do these practices. And, and you start to see all the variance and the range and the, that you can start to fit it into the transpersonal maps and the maps, the graphs and see how all those may or may not line up. Actually, the graph maps are kind of orthogonal. So if the graph, the graphs, if people are familiar with transpersonal maps, like in, you know, the stormy search for the self or spiritual emergency, they tend to map by the content of it. Like it's Kundalini-ish or it's magical or it's archetypal or it's entities or whatever. Whereas the stages of insight tend to map this way. The first thing you see about the Kundalini or the ar archetype or the alien or whatever it is this, and then you see this, and then you see this, then you see this. So they map orthogonally to each other for those who are trying to sort that out, or at least that's what I think of it as doing. And so I found the maps incredibly empowering. Some people find them very, very distracting. They get lost in content. They get all strivy and competitive and comparisons and judgment. And, oh, it's not doing exactly what I thought it should. And, oh, I'm not making as fast progress as it should. And, oh, this other person claims this. And that makes me angry because I'm jealous or whatever. So the maps also have, just like all of these technologies, the risks, benefits, and alternatives. So now that I've exposed you to the maps, sorry about that, probably should have had a consent warning even before we had this podcast. <laughs> um, but once you've seen the maps, it's hard not to see them. And so the problem is you can't really go back entirely. And then people have to wrestle with that. Just kind of like as people in sports, um, you know, initially you just like throwing a ball or, you know, doing whatever. And then there's suddenly all these rules and scores. And some people will get all obsessed with rules and scores and forget that games are supposed to be fun. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And just play the game. And by the way, we got whatever score. So there's a mature way to have a relationship to the maps, but not everybody learns that well. And so, and we're still trying to figure out who the maps are good for and who they're not good for and, and how to help people come to more rich, mature relationships to them if they're exposed to them and a mature relationship is not what appears to be naturally developing from how their makeup and personality style and attachment style and whatever is meeting with whatever map they've been exposed to. So we're still developing those technologies. Yeah. And that's through the EPRC? Yeah. So the EPRC is this Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium where we hope to upgrade the public and clinical understandings of these progressions such that they have a more nuanced, detailed, working, clinically applicable, data-driven, good outcomes, increasing set of technologies and concepts for relating to those who are having these experiences on the path or even off the path. Because these, I know people who these experiences have happened to that didn't have any obvious sense of spiritual training. Um, it's just through paying attention that they managed to get um, good at this. Yeah. And um, so where, where do, um, you know, the four paths or the, um, I guess you can say that like the four main levels of awakening fit into the progress of insight? Yeah. So now we're talking Theravada maps. This is one specific way of mapping this, which has its pros and cons. And as anybody who's attempted to use this system will notice, it's not always so straightforward. And they may, maybe the levels, different numbers of levels or different numbers of openings. Or, so I'm going to tell you a somewhat idealized system that actually needs a little bit of, I think, sophisticated enhancement. It, it was a pretty good start. And we, we're trying to build on that. Um, and there are traditions that actually do find just throwing it out and using totally other systems. So, so anyway, just one of many possible ways to look at this. But the traditional way of looking at this 
from a Theravada old school Buddhist point of view is that there were four levels of awakening or are. The first is stream entry. And so you go through an entire progress of insight, get to equanimity, come to something called conformity knowledge, where in three quick moments, bub, 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 you perceive reality clearly, everything disappears and reappears in a very specific way because there are a bunch of other experiences where it seems everything disappears and reappears. So you got to get the right one. This is getting microphenomenological and technical. And then if you get the right way of reality totally disappearing, including space and background and observer and everything, and then reappearing, then it'll flip the brain over into a different configuration where you're now different. Now people cycle more rapidly. They have more mastery of the stages. Perhaps they can maybe get more repeat, disappear, reappear things, which have a very nice blissful afterglow after them. And they are kind of in the stream of the Dharma. Now the path is going to unfold more quickly for them. It may or may not have various emotional changes or dogmatic changes that gets complicated, but then um, people start cycling through stages of insight again. So mind and body cause and effect three characteristics, blah, blah, you know, and, and going around and around, usually dropping in actually at the level of the arising and passing away. So we're getting all technical. And then they would, you know, be able to navigate through dark night stages more rapidly. That's the fear, misery, disgust, desire for deliverance, et cetera. And um, really dis dissolution is technically part of that too, though generally isn't that unpleasant. And they would um, be able to get to equanimity and see space as an open thing. And usually they've had some sense of transformation of the relationship between this side and that side that gives some kind of more distance or spaciousness. People describe this various ways depending on their tradition and stuff. So, and then at some point of what we call review, new stages of mind, new layers of mind seem to be showing up. And then one has to do the same thing again for that layer see identify thoughts as thoughts see cause effect relationship three characteristics a new arising and passing away peak experience a new dark night maybe go up and down that through that a whole bunch of times as well and eventually flip over to second path which may have reduced emotional problematic something spaciousness around things emotions moving through more quickly maybe an appreciation of the fractal nature of experience if you're a technical practitioner it, it there's a range and then at some point third path, I'm just going to start condensing this. You, another new layer of mind starts showing up of stuff that doesn't appear to be well perceived in that same awakening kind of way. And you do the same thing again for that. And then if, you know, and then at some point you flip and everything like this is now it in a way it wasn't before. Experience is more luminous, natural, immediate, causal, and it applies to progressively more and more of all of waking experience. And then eventually, if you see whatever last layers, which could be one or a few or a lot of subtle delusional stuff where you're still not perceiving things as clearly just unfolding now eventually when you see through all those layers however many there are then it flips over and you get to our hot ship where it's now natural at baseline no other option other than the clear natural perception of an unfolding immediate transient luminous empty full whatever well, and so you answered my question because I was going to say, what are like some of the symptoms of the four paths, but you, you, you nailed it right there. So <laughs> good on you. And again, um, there's a lot of variants in this stuff. This is complicated. I, I took a very simplistic map, added a little bit of sophistication, but that's nowhere near the whole story. And that could be a whole long series of hours of discussion. So just realize there's, there's more to that topic. What, what time are you available today? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Well, yeah, yeah. no, so and I and I hope to have you on a series of times because again, I think you have um, really helpful in, in, information that helps put things into kind of perspective and even kind of like a meta perspective because 
Um, I think that's important. And the and biggest trick with all this mappy stuff, by the way, is not to get too future fixated. So yeah. it really is yeah. just your sensations occurring right now that are either the basis of confusion or the basis of awakening. And it really is just clearly perceiving them in a very direct, straightforward way that illuminates their potentially awakened aspects and hopefully enough of those to flip over into new configurations of consciousness that just appreciate levels of that naturally at baseline. So it, with in the face of all this map theory that can get very like, oh, they're awakened and I'm not. So these sensations are not good sensations and those are or something. No, these yeah. sensations, all sensations demonstrate this very straightforwardly if you can pay clear attention to them. So when dealing with maps, always try to focus it back on the here and now and how those maps can help you see just what's going on in your own fathom long body, as the old text would say very clearly. Most people don't know what a fathom is, but it's about as long as a body, apparently. Yeah. Well, and I, I think a good, I mean, at least in my experience, kind of like a good countermeasure for some of the mappy stuff, if you're starting to overthink it or anything like that, is kind of like a, the uh, um, Ramana Maharshi or kind of even Zen or Chan, just like here now, be here now. And just or like kind of Dzogchen, you know, sort of yeah, pop Dzogchen, yeah, as I'll yes, call it, yeah. or Sutta Mahamudra, books like um, Shift into Freedom by Lot Kelly, just very immediate non-dual approaches. Um, yeah. Yeah, can be very, very helpful. Zazen, just sitting, she can Yeah, because, you know, yeah, I think it's good things. to have those kind of different tools to kind of, if right. you're in a spot where you can reconfigure on the, on, just right on the flow, just move right into whatever you need to for that present moment. You know, whatever, you know, if we want to go Buddhist here, we'll, uh, relieve the most suffering or dukkha, right? Just um, to get technical, I guess. Um, so I, I'm gonna, I wanna shift gears here a little bit because um, we're, we're talked a lot about awakening and maybe have people uh, have some ideas now of, you know, what that is, maybe if they've experienced any of that themselves, even on small degrees. Yeah, nearly um, everybody is going to have tons of ideas and ideals, both overt yeah. and sort of subconscious about what awakening must entail. Making a conscious inventory of that, I think, is a really good idea. Trying to figure out where you got those ideas is sometimes very interesting. Yeah. And do those ideas or ideals help you be with what is going on now? Or do they create shadow sides? Because most of them create shadow sides. Most of them are like, Oh, I'm feeling angry, so this can't be a moment worthy of investigation because it's, you know, yeah. I shouldn't be angry or something. And that I think is very not helpful. Whereas ideals of awakening that involve a strong focus on these sensations here and now, this full range of human experience, emotionally, archetypally, physically, magically, whatever, um, with whatever is going on. Uh, that I think is, are the, those are the kinds of ideals that I think generally make for better practice. And the ones that are very high and lofty and perfection related or knowing all knowing or all seeing or having all powers or, you know, being some glowing radiant saint guru or whatever. <laughs> I think most of the time, those are not very helpful. They can inspire some people for a while, right. but eventually yeah. I think they have start creating a split between one's actual experience and the ideal. And that, that split can be very, very challenging. And instead just learn to see those sensations of idealism as transient things that occur now. 
that have sights and sounds and components to them, the sense of comparison, the sense of judgment, the sense of a future that you imagine you will wake up into. Just notice those sensations happening now. Now, I think that's the, the key point when dealing with all these sorts of ideals coming from whatever tradition, as well as ourselves, which we will have gotten from pop culture and just our own projections and attachment relationships to parents and all this stuff. Yeah. And, and even in a really simple way, which is going to kind of get into um, uh, what else I wanted to discuss was like somebody was driving so slow in front of me, right? Uh, just earlier today. And I, so I noticed um, and I started noting, right? Agitation and then recognition. And then I, I was, as I was doing that, I was noticing, noticing, noticing and, and noting relief as as in noticing it, you know, so it was really, it was really cool to just observe that chain uh, occur. Nice. Um, also, if you're meditating while driving, notice distance the car in front of me. Oh, uh, red no. lights coming well, on in front of me. Zochen Stop sign. Awareness. Pedestrian. Like, <laughs> yeah. Just, just yeah. be careful with that meditation when driving no, I, thing, because yeah. it, it, you know, focus on the road. That's arrive alive. Yeah. Well, no, I wasn't even meditating. You know, okay, but still, right? Yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, good. Anyway, yeah. just for those, and, yeah, out we there don't, are, yeah, we don't, no meditation when driving. Yeah, no, no meditation while driving ever, even though I, well, meditate in a way yeah. that is conducive to driving. Yeah, there's the red lights in front of me, there's the stop sign, there's the pedestrian, there's yeah, the pothole, yeah, yeah. there's the detour, there's the, there's the speed I'm going. Yeah, Pay attention yeah. to things that are worthy of paying attention to while driving. Yeah. This is yeah. the person in my blind spot. Yeah. Um, so early, early on, and, and I guess your, your journey, um, or maybe midway, I don't know what you want to call it. You went to IMS and insight meditation yeah. society. So what, when you went there, um, what were you taught there? Like how, what was the meditation instruction like? Yeah. So I started sitting with uh, Christopher Titmus from Charter Rogel and Jose Rezic was my first retreat. And it was very, straightforward. It was like, here are the sensations of the body. Here are the sensations of the breath. Here are thoughts, which will try to catch you in their content, the stories and tape loops of the mind. Here are feelings. Here are pleasant and unpleasant sensations, neutral sensations. Here are the feet when walking. Um, here are sights. Here are you brushing your teeth. Here you're eating. Here you're showering. And so very very straight, straightforward um, meditation. These things come and go. Notice them coming and going naturally. Try not to get caught or fixated on anything, but pay attention to the freshness of this moment. So it was very Thai forest. It was very Vipassana. Sharda added a subtle but um, kind of Vedantic component, though she really at that time was teaching a lot of Vipassana sounding stuff. And it was very nice. They, they gave very good support, but they were non-mappy. So yeah. when on my first retreat, you know, somewhere, you know, a number of about a week in, all of a sudden it felt like my consciousness exploded on the cushion. And I felt like I was dropped back down into my body. Literally, I described it at the time as being dropped down out of a spaceship. Um, yeah. Like, and my body was this buzzing, complicated thing of like whirring particles and like, what the hell? You know, they, they were just like, okay, we'll notice the particles and the, they, they just give straightforward instructions to pay attention. 
But my brain, it turns out, just I just happen to be one of these people that I think I do better when I have some context and maps and progressive stages, because this was just kind of like, what the hell? And it reminded me of stuff that had happened earlier to me in my childhood, about six times before I started going on retreats. And since I was a teenager, and I was like, well, this is what the heck. But then there was all this philosophizing and speculating and wondering, whereas I think if they had just told me, as later experiments showed, this is this, this is that, that's normal. Here's what you do in the face of that and how you take advantage of the opportunities. This strange way of perceiving reality is lending you. And, and here's how you can turn that into further good practice rather than, whoa, ah, this is so exciting. This is so weird. This is so, whoa, like, you know, um, I think I would have done better with normalization anyway. But so they were very nice people and it was a beautiful place to practice and the food was really good. And, you know, it's a nice center. I was just actually up there uh, in um, August meeting with Joseph Goldstein just to say hello and talk about some things and still just as beautiful as ever. It's just a delightful yeah. place. So yeah, it was, it was nice. I'm very happy that I started my practice there because they gave me good foundational training. They didn't give me technical training like maps and states and stages and precise sort of advanced techniques, but they gave me very good foundational training. So that I'm very grateful for that. And were, were they using the noting there? No, I wouldn't learn noting until, okay. um, yeah, my third retreat is when I then went to the Malaysian Buddhist Meditation Center for about two weeks and learned to, actually, sorry, it was, um, yeah, about 12 days, I think. And then that's where I learned Mahasi Saidao noting. And that's where my practice was taken to what was clearly a next level of precision. And that was also where I learned the insight stage maps for the first time. Okay. And that's exactly where I was going uh, with that was kind of you went to learn the Mahasi stuff. Um, so for, for people listening, right, they've, they've never heard of Mahasi style kind of approach to uh, meditation. Um, what, give us a short how-to guide on the Mahasi approach. And I'm going to give you a little bit of history. So the little bit of history of this is there were a lot of reform movements that happened in Buddhism starting in the late 1800s and continuing into the 1900s, of which the Mahasi Saidao tradition was one, coming out of a Burmese um, monk named Lady Saidao and they um, and some other um, important teachers around at the time. Its, its style is very technical. It's very technique oriented. And it basically, it's Burmese, old school Theravada, and it comes out of sutras such as one by one as they occurred, which you can find in a book called The Middle Length Discourses of the Buddha or Majimini Kaya. And it's basically noticing here's a physical sensation. Here's a mental sensation. Here's the rising sens sensations of the breath rising. Here's the sensations of the breath falling. Here's the sense of the feet when walking meditation, which is very important in Mahasi tradition, lifting, moving, placing. Here's seeing, here's hearing, here's thinking, here's a wandering mind, here is pain, you know, here is a feeling. And one learns to note and apply an internal mental label to each of these things. So internally, you wouldn't be saying this out loud, although some people do actually in what's called social noting, a recent innovation by people like Kenneth Folk and um, appreciated by people like Vince Horn, um, who's been part of that. And um, it's, but when you're doing this silently, it might sound like, you know, rising, falling, thinking, hearing, seeing, falling, 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 rising, rising, thinking, wandering, uh, falling, 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 um, pain, um, you know, uh, 
seeing, um, you know, wandering, uh, falling, 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 thinking. And as you get better at this, applying mental labels to phenomena and you get faster at it and you get more stable at it, you know, brushing, eating, chewing, tasting, swallowing, smelling, seeing, um, et cetera, then the notes start speeding up as you start to try to, as you're able to perceive more and more little bits of reality and more kind of frames or swashes or movements of reality and more of the intricacy. And then um, eventually it gets too fast to be able to note. And then you just switch to noticing, which is you're just noticing each of the sensations that you had been noting. And then if your mindfulness starts to get less strong, your concentration gets less strong, you start to wander again, maybe you go back to the noting when you need it to use what was ordinarily um, a problem for a lot of people, which is the linear thought stream. You start turning the linear thought stream into something that actually is helping with your practice. Now, there are people who do well in this method and people who don't, people who like this method, people who don't, people who think it's incredibly authentic, people who say, oh, it's totally wrong. This, like everything in Buddhism, there's a tremendous amount of controversy. And um, yeah, and some people have frighteningly strong opinions about this stuff. Uh, I found the technique very helpful. Some people, not so much. Um, you just have to see what works for you. Yeah. And um, you, um, in, in your book, you there's a lot of kind of um, different technical stuff. I think it's, it's helpful information. Um, talk about the, uh, the six sense doors. So can yeah. you, ex yeah. Explain to people what, what are the six sense doors, even though it's kind of straightforward. <laughs> I'm actually going to add a one up to that and explain it as like a three-dimensional magical display. Okay. So the scientific materialists would say that curiously enough, everything you think of as colors and sounds and sights and your actual reality is being created in a meat brain somewhere right? Or the people who say this is all a matrix saying it's all being created in a computer somewhere. Regardless, the implications are the same. Let's imagine for just a second that, that your whole world, the room or car or street or whatever you're, you're currently occupying, um, was just a magical display and that each point in space can create any type of sensation. It can be clear. It can have a smell, a taste, a sound, a texture, a meaning, an interpretation, an intention, sorry, an intention, a mental impression. It can do any of these things. And so each pixel in space is gonna have some sort of quality. It might have a sound quality to it. It might have a skin quality to it. So right here, these, these would be sort of, you know, black and sort of foamy feeling. And these are sort of, rubbery and kind of warm and pressury feeling. And there are sounds that seem to be coming from somewhere in this region. And when you talk, there's sounds that kind of occur in this region. And then, so you will notice that there's basically six categories. The way we usually categorize, categorize reality is into sights and sounds and physical sensations, smell, taste, and then thoughts. And thoughts can actually have colors. They can have sounds to them like I'm thinking a singy songy thought, you know, and I can think that thought in a singy songy way and it has an auditory quality to it, or I can recollect what's on my calendar. Oh, that's what's on my calendar. And I sort of get this vague sense of a grid with colors and numbers and October and stuff, right? And, oh, today, you know, I'm supposed to have a podcast with you. 
So there's there's colors and there's physical sensations. I can imagine what it would be like to put my hand through the monitor, to press hard on the monitor or something and what the monitor kind of feels like. And so that's a thought impression of what tactile sensations would be like if I actually touched the monitor and got my fingerprints all over it in front of me. So in that kind of way, we have these sensations. And, and so that's our experiential reality. And there's some other subtle proprioceptive and other sensations we have. Okay, I don't want to get into that kind of debate. But for most people, that's what they're dealing with. And so um, then we can notice that since that is our experience, obviously our experience is important for our life. <laughs> and since this is what our experience is made of, we can learn to pay better attention to that. And then the fundamental premise is that by paying attention to what each of these pixels, if you will, of the three-dimensional display are creating at each moment, we can wake up to the whole display with all of its qualities becoming bright and clear in a way that makes their, what I will loosely call true nature, ephemerality, immediacy, luminosity, causality, whatever, we can notice that that is actually what is going on with them. And eventually there is no option but to notice that that is what's going on with all of them. And then that pervades everything at all layers of experience and then we're awake. So that's kind of how that goes in a straightforward way if you're good at this. Yeah, very easy, Daniel. <laughs> well, it is and it no, is. This is no, the funny I know, thing. I know, I know yeah. people who have woken up with yeah. no retreats when they were you know, less than 20 years old. Yeah. Um, and they just woke up by very straightforwardly just paying attention. And I also know other people who have years and years and years on retreat, and they're still struggling with early stages. And so it's very hard to tell. And then I know people who were struggle, struggle, struggle. And then all of a sudden it's massive openings, like incredible things. And so it's not linear. The path is not linear at all. It's not very predictable. We don't, you know, we sort of hand wave karma or, whatever of why some people make good practice or don't, which is a reasonable thing to hand wave. Carbon really just means causality, that there must be reasons for it. Right. We just don't yeah. know what all, we speculate about what all of them are. We don't know what all of them are. My guess is it's something partially genetic and cultural and I don't know, probably yeah. a lot of well, reasons. Yeah, and then, I mean, there's just in different people's cases, uh, circumstantial, I, I feel. Um, sure, obviously, well, that's part of the causality of this yeah. reality. I'm very lucky that I just happened to run into people early on who were great meditation teachers. And I got to sit in some great places and had the resources and time to be able to pursue those things and yeah. the unbelievable good fortune. So, yeah. Um, now you, in your book, um, you also talked about the three trainings and you explained how the morality training is kind of very vast and wide. Um, the, the concentration, which is the second training, is is a little bit more narrow, but um, the wisdom or the insight training is especially narrow. Um, yes. Can you can you explain why? Yeah. So Buddhism has three trainings: this is the Eightfold Noble Path, which is you know kind of standard old school way of thinking about what Buddhist training entails, is to is in three divisions: so sila, samadhi, and Panya or Prajna or pick your favorite Pali versus Sanskrit yeah. versions of these. And Sila, uh, what we could translate as ethical stuff or moral stuff, depending on how you want to use those terms. And it's basically trying to speak well, to act well, and to think well. And then within that, all of the ways you could 
act well are everything from how to be skillful with regard to you know the people you're around or your environment or your food or your body or psychology you know how to think well with regard to psychology how to feel well how to understand well how to have ordinary knowledge well how to speak well and in a way that is hopefully helpful these are endlessly complicated things right which involve all possible ordinary skill sets that are non-meditative everything you could learn that is not meditation falls into this category everything you could get better at and that's basically infinite, right? How many skill sets are there? I couldn't, we couldn't possibly count them all. How many things are there that you could be better at? We couldn't count them all. How many ways are there that we could better understand our internal psychology or our childhood? I think there's no end to that. I, I don't see an obvious end point of development. And so we have essentially an infinitely large possible range of trainings that pragmatically for our own life has its limits, thank God, because otherwise it would be ridiculous. You know, we have the things we work on and the things we're, you know, training in and all that that are relatively narrow because there's only so many hours in the day. So that's training and morality. And it assumes a bunch of things. It assumes that you exist as a separate person who has a will and is in control, who will experience the karmic results of your actions in this social and physical and whatever context you find yourself, legal, et cetera, context you will find yourself in. Very ordinary assumptions, very straightforward. Most people relate pretty well to training to lead a good life, to be okay, to be healthy and well. So that's basically a summary of this. It's a huge topic. Again, could be hours of discussion. And then concentration um, is basically how to cultivate skillful states of mind, how to reject unskillful states of mind, to take skillful states of mind and develop them into very powerful skillful states of mind, profound senses of bliss, of stable attention, of exclusion from you know, un unfortunate feelings that are challenging like fear and doubt and greed and hatred and all that boredom, restlessness, how to push those away, how to instead attend to very specific states of consciousness here we're talking formal meditative attainments, formal concentration states. We usually call jhanas or jnanas. They're called other things in other traditions. And these are accessible to people who learn to stabilize their attention and to cultivate positive qualities of mind. So we cultivate joy, we cultivate bliss, we cultivate tranquility, equanimity, even formlessness. We can learn to dissolve our bodies and just be in vast spaces or vast fields of luminous consciousness or even nothingness or even go out beyond that. So this is, these are the jhanas, and um, this is a very specialized training. And the number of ways we can learn to do this is actually quite large. There are countless concentration objects and exercises and focuses, colors, mantras, the breath, feet, space, deities, contemplations. It's huge, right? Cultivations of feelings of loving kindness or of equanimity or joy whatever. So it's a big topic, but it's not nowhere, nowhere near as big as morality is, right? Because it's limited to topics related to meditation and cultivating skillful states. So it's much more bounded, but it is still assumes will. It still assumes time. It still assumes attainment, attainer. It still assumes that you through effort and then the, the relinquishing of effort into the higher stages can attain to some spectacular states. And these are things that people can learn to do. And then, um, then there's training in, in insight. And in this case, it's a super specific type of insight, which is literally just seeing the three characteristics of the six sense doors. 
you just learn to see all sensations at any sense door come and go on their own in an observed naturally causal way that has some weird tension in it relating to try to create trying to create a stable thing out of a changing universe that is it yeah there's also a ton of techniques and emphases and styles and debates about the best way to do that but it is vastly more constrained than the territory of concentration and so and and when people say wisdom they're usually thinking of ordinary wisdom they usually like how right, to talk yeah. to your parents how to save the planet how to conventional you know, wisdom conventional yeah. wisdom but this is a very specialized definition of the world word wisdom at a fundamentally experiential existential level of do you exist or not and if so what is you or what isn't you yeah right in your immediate yeah. rapidly changing experience of this moment it's very empirical in the sense of like david hume your experience being the first basis of all other extrapolations, ideas about past and future and everything is based on your immediate senses. And so this is constraining things. And it actually assumes you do not exist. There is no stable you that can be found. There is no time that can be found. There is no true past that can be found, no true future. And nothing exists that you're not immediately experiencing. So it gets rid of object permanence. It gets rid of a lot of things that are very useful for trainings and morality and concentration. So it has a very, very different set of assumptions um, that one adopts when doing that kind of training and tries to see as being true and or not true and you know by investigation, confirm it for yourself, do your own research, as people say. Um, uh, you know, um, and so that is the experiment, the very limited, narrow, bounded experiment that is formal training and wisdom, at least from a Theravada point of view. Uh, now, other traditions might add some other stuff to that. Okay, fine. Um, yeah. And, you know, speaking of uh, concentration exercises, um, you've talked a lot about fire casino. So uh, consider, pretend I, I know nothing about fire casino. How, how do I do fire casino? So this is an old school thing that comes out of, actually, it's clearly pre-Buddhist, right? So they clearly were training in this before Buddhism arose. You, it um, was an old school meditation thing. And kasina is a word that means using an external object as a basis of concentration. So for example, I could take this headphone case and I could put it in front of me and stare at it and use it as something I was focusing my attention on and do the headphone case casino, which in this case would basically be the black casino, which is fine. There's, um, and so you would basically what you do in fire casino is you look at a, a candle flame is what we typically use that you could use the light on your phone. You just don't want to look at it nearly as long because it's much yeah, brighter. Yeah, yeah just a second if, if that, anything. <laughs> and um, really prefer a candle, you're less likely to do any damage because it's not a lot of light. And you look at the candle flame for a minute or so, you close your eyes. Most people will see some kind of something like a red dot or a yellow dot that kind of stabilizes out as you know a, a sign that you can then take to then just explore what the colors do. So basically you look at the light source, not too long, just enough to get a retinal impression. You, you close your eyes, you look at the retinal impression, whatever it does, until you feel like opening your eyes again. You feel like, ah, this isn't interesting to look at anymore, whatever. Could be a minute, could be an hour, doesn't matter. You open your eyes, you look at the light source again, you close your eyes, you look at whatever it does when you close your eyes, and you just keep doing that. Yeah. And high dose. And the higher you, the dose, 
the wilder stuff will get. Yeah. And as you learn to just stabilize attention on the changing visual field, however it changes, you will go through a progressive series of stages that we've done a pretty good job of mapping out now. And you could look at the Fire Casina, F-I-R-E-K-A-S-I-N-A dot O-R-G website, and you can find our glossary there, which we'll talk about some of the stuff you're likely to see. We don't mean to script anybody if you see something else totally cool. And yeah. But the point is that this we're very visual creatures, and this rapidly builds a sense of fascination with what is going on in our internal experience. And you start to notice a lot about one's relationship with intention and what you see. So you might start to be able to manipulate the colors or the shapes. You might start to see how your judgment of whether or not they're the good colors or bad colors or good shapes or bad shapes, how that interplays. You might notice um, all kinds of strange things. It actually become it's a huge topic, but again, it's super simple things done in high dose. And the higher the dose, like I like this at the 12 to 15 hour a day dose. Yeah. Um, and when you get up to that kind of dose, things get quite wild quite quickly. It's a long topic I've done whole podcasts about. You can see me on Michael Taft and some other podcasts where I talk about this. But um, yeah, and it's a remarkable technique. It simultaneously produces skillful states of mind. So it fulfills criteria, um, concentration criteria, but it also uh, can produce insight. So we watch people curiously enough move through stages of insight. It just looks a little more technicolorly wild, has its own flavor to it based on the object. And people can also get into magical territory and seeing entities and energetic stuff and archetypal stuff. And it can get weirder than that, going to other places sometimes, particularly as the doses start getting higher, seeing all kinds of remarkable images, having insights about other things. I'll just stop there. Yeah. yeah. And so it seems to work on three fronts, at least simultaneously. And a lot of people also start having very archetypal kind of Jungian sorts of experiences, but it can also do energetic Kundalini stuff. It can do a lot of things. It's a powerful technique. And what you're going to get actually varies a lot by the person. So I've done 10 retreats of this and each one was different. They yeah. had similar themes of how it would progress, but in terms of the more spectacular stuff, all quite different. And you, so you don't know what you're going to get, which is also part of the fun, right? Yeah. So I highly recommend going into this without a lot of idealism and just say, okay, I'll just do the thing, pay attention, see what happens and hopefully keep your wits about you because this can get yeah. pretty weird. So risk benefits alternatives, there are definitely safer, less weird techniques. This can yeah. get quite altered. This can get very altered, very fast in the same kind of way that psychedelics can. It's not as it's not as fast as psychedelics, which are a few seconds to 30 minutes or so, you know, depending on your route of administration in the psychedelic. But yeah. um, once you've paid your entrance price in terms of time, which varies by the person, this can get quite wild, which is not always a good thing. So if you're doing this, it's also good to have people around who know how to do this, who can help you make sense of the experiences because they can get quite powerful, sometimes quite odd and sometimes very challenging. Um, yeah. So just you know, risk benefits alternatives, lots of other ways to get your concentration strong <laughs> that aren't quite as bizarre. Yeah. And don't have quite as interesting a side effect profile. Yeah. So, and, and just for basic setup for people, um, the recommended kind of candle, recommended lighting, recommended oh, yeah. kind of- Sure. Okay. So um, 
we tend to recommend candles that are not over about an inch and a half because they tend to get lips on them, right? Yeah. So they, they tend to get edges that burn unevenly. Actually, I think the best candles are like sort of, you know, half inch regular dinner candles, like yeah. you see in a standard dinner table con candelabra. And then we tend to put it about arm's length. So about where my hand is, like if you just put your, you know, and it'll vary depending on what your vision is, but somewhere around, you know, the end of your fingertips to your face, that kind of thing. And we tend to sit in very comfy chairs when we do this. We like lounge chairs and you can look at the light and lay down as long as you can not fall asleep. That's fine. And also sometimes do this while walking. So I might put the candle and get my after image and then like walk and put it on the wall and turn around oh, and put wow, it on the wall. Yeah. And so we do this while walking, which actually is a traditional instruction. You're, you're supposed to be able to stare at the thing until you get the sign you're working with and then walk somewhere else and do that. So actually walking with this is a traditional instruction, which I think helps build that sense that the whole three-dimensional waking world with eyes open is actually a screen that could be magically manipulated, which it is. So that's one of the ways to learn that. If you've ever been like studying ceremonial magic and you were trying to draw the pentagrams in the air with, with your lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram or something, you couldn't see them. And that was frustrating. Get good at this. And this is a good way to be able to see them when you draw them and feel them yeah. too. So that's interesting. And so, um, yeah. And then you just, you know, we tend to do this without a clock. So we tend to just like, you know, do your sitting or reclining until you feel like you need to move and then move for a while doing it while walking until you feel like you need to sit. Um, tend to talk during meals because this can get very powerful and very weird. So it's good to check in with everybody and make sure when we're doing this on retreat that we know what's going on with everybody and we can help provide appropriate support to those who are starting to get not just off the rails, but off the rails in a bad way. So yeah. going off the rails is kind of what this is about, but there's off the rails in ways that don't work very well. And so, yeah, yeah. not so safe. So we, so that's what, how we tend to run our retreats. And then and higher dose leads to more powerful effects that can be good or bad. Yeah. And then the lighting in the room, is the, is the lighting supposed to be um, regular, dim? That's a long debated question. And it seems to vary by the phase of practice initially darker, slightly darker rooms, probably better in the middle, what we call Merc phase. I think lighter rooms are actually better. It's actually, that's a long discussion. Yeah. But you kind of have to roll with it and see what works for you for that phase. Don't assume that whatever answer worked two days ago is going to work today. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And I, I hope, I hope one day to do a fire casino retreat with you. That would be so awesome, man. That yeah. sounds uh, very interesting. Um, uh, this is kind of like a one-off question um, that just popped in my mind. How, how would you compare um, like insight practice to um, like inquiry practice? Well, inquiry, like where you're like asking yourself questions or something yeah, can be super powerful. And I actually think that's something that's missing from a lot of modern Vipassana because in the text, they clearly ask you to inquire are these sensations you? Are the sensations of neck you? Are the sensations of face you? Are the sensations of skin you? Are the sensations of eyes you? Are they stable or are they transient? Is there satisfaction to be found in them or not? And that kind of a three characteristics sort of based inquiry of who am I? Who am I not? What is this? Is it stable? Is it not? How does this work? That I actually think is very, very helpful. And I actually did a lot of that or, um, and found it quite useful. So I actually think that inquiry-based practice, where you're using a question to experientially frame a sensate investigation. Yeah, yeah. 
is very, very, very skillful and underappreciated, I think, in this um, game a lot, where people just yeah. think, oh, I'll just notice sensation after sensation, rather than thinking about the interpretation or the meaning or the import in some existential way of those sensations or patterns of sensations or feelings or thoughts or whatever. And so I think because awakening actually exists at the, the fusion of both perception and interpretation, because it was through perceiving sensations clearly that the interpretation of them changed, but something in the perception and the, the interpretive frame did lend additional ability, I think, for things to flip over into an alternate configuration of both perception and meaning, which actually arise together. I don't mean to give the constructionists undue ammo here, um, but something. Yeah. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Because I mean, I had um, noticed in my own kind of journey um, and path of awakening, um, it's just these different technical terms would come up. Um, and, and, and once you kind of learn them and learn, like think, oh, that's actually a thing. I, I've, I've been doing that. And I didn't realize that it was an actual thing. There was a, a name for it, a label for it, but it, it's something that naturally developed regardless, even like yeah. the mindfulness thing, you know, when you start meditating, uh, you know, for a while and do pretty intensive, you, you start to have those states where you're noticing things, um, you know, sporadically throughout the day. And you're like, oh, that's a thing. You know, and same with the, you know, when I was doing a lot of uh, self-inquiry and, and that kind of approach, um, I noticed that there was a similarity to the insight, at least in the sense where I would sit with inquiry and insights would arise. So, yeah, um, of course. And that's why koans can work. And that's why very direct approaches, who am I, questions yeah. like that can work. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and again, we're, we're going to switch gears here a little now. Uh, this is something we've talked about. Um, but this this name comes up in almost like a uh, infamous sense in some ways. Um, Bill Hamilton, you I, you know, in the <laughs> beginning, beginning of your book and the book is dedicated to, to Bill Hamilton. And I'm like, who you know, who is this guy? Who's Bill Hamilton? I'm trying to find like good resources on him. And it's so sparse throughout everywhere everybody has heard of this guy you find out that everybody's heard of him but not many people knew him um but he had kind of um i don't know i i, I don't want to frame it in like a a way but he was almost he sounded like almost like a badass uh in oh, the yeah. dharma world oh, so he was he's one of yeah, the most so, badass meditators i've ever met in my life well, so, and I was fascinated by that. And, and of course his, his book is available, um, Saints and Psychopaths, uh, yeah. which is a fascinating read, but at, at the same time, I'm thinking like this guy doesn't was get at anything like what this guy was. Right. Exactly. And, and I couldn't find anything else. And I'm like, where's, you know, where's videos his, of his like Dharma talks, where's this. And I, so I, I, I decided that I'm going to start a project. I'm going to write an article for medium and, um, hopefully do some interviews and, and compile everything together. And um, again, uh, you know, I think fascinating from what I've heard, there was a short interview with deep mindfulness where they asked Shinzen Young about Bill Hamilton and he gave his small account. And um, 
I forget the, the terminology he used, um, the unsung hero of the, the Western Dharma world. Oh, yeah. No question. So who who's Bill Hamilton and why did you dedicate your book to him? So Bill Hamilton, there's no way to overstate how important he was to my practice, to Kenneth Folk's practice, and to a number of people's practices. He was an obscure, kind of paranoid, weird, geeky, quirky, odd, hyper-dedicated gentleman that by the time um, he died, had done, I think, seven years on retreat or something. And I only met him once in person, and this was before I even had anything like the capacity to appreciate what he was, and then talked with him on the phone a lot in the period of 96 to 97. And then uh, he died of pancreatic cancer, unfortunately, when he was relatively young, his early 60s, I think. And he um, was supposed to have written a whole bunch of books that were going to be his dharma and teaching, and he didn't. Uh, and so my book is very much an attempt to, in a, in a way that I think is nothing like what he would have been able to do had he written it, to get some of the stuff down in writing that was not that he didn't write down, unfortunately, and that I ended up being the person who wrote it down, I think is unfortunate because he would have done a better job, I'm quite sure. Now, he was a very interesting person because he's kind of cusp between full pragmatic dharma and the old way of taboos and not talking about it and weird kind of ideals about spirituality and kind of boomer mishmash. Anyway, plenty of good boomer practitioners out there, but you know what I mean. And so, um, and he would talk about practice and awakening. You kind of had to drag it out of him. You kind of had to break through the barriers of, of like his reluctance, and then he would open up, and then he would just start pouring out amazing stuff about fractals and technical meditation and jhanic phase attention shapes and deep insights and cool takes on things. And yeah, and so I talked to him a lot on the phone, but again, only met him once in person. And Kenneth Folk is the person you really need to talk to. If yeah. I, He's kind of in a non-podcasty mood at the moment, which is yeah. too bad from a learn about Bill Hamilton point of view. I understand why he is. It's fine. I respect that. But he hung out with him a lot more. He was there at the end when he was dying. He, um, They were much closer. He did retreats with him. He hung out at his places at Whidbey Island. And he's the guy to talk to. So I don't mean yeah. to, to like say, I'm not your guy, but I'm not as good as some people. But he didn't teach many people in terms of like, what I would think of as the full transmission download of what he right. was. Right. I think there are really only two of us that we know of. There may be others we don't know about, but as far as I know, it's kind of Kenneth and I, which yeah. is really too bad. Um, yeah. Well, and that's why I want to do a um, kind of like a small project on him. I, I think it's fascinating and I think it's, you know, galvanizing and um, yeah, it's, again, it's just a fascinating thing. And, and um what would you say about his his capability as a meditator? Yeah. He died awakener. what I think of as an arhat who had spectacular jhanic skills and could attain to fruitions that lasted hours and could attain to Naroda Samapati and was always just a total badass when it came to be able to do these very advanced states and stages and to be able to do them for long periods of time. So he could really get duration of these things and had a lot of control. And, you know, he was the first person I, I heard seriously talk about formless realms. 
he was the first person I heard ser seriously talk about Naroto Samapati. And you could tell he was talking from his own experience and he would just get technical and precise and think stuff about how to do these things and what they were like and, and all of that in a way that I, I never heard anybody else really do at that full yeah. on level. And this is when he would open up and he would talk about fine stages and sub stages and yanas and sub yanas and sub jhanas and seeing this part of this aspect of the experience within that and that also kind of technical craft of ultra precise meditative phenomenology he's the first person i ever heard do that in that way uh just unbelievable and yeah nobody else was doing that nobody else was talking from that kind of a place and nobody else was he, he was lucky you could just call him up and talk to him because he was hiding out in his trailer and in Whidbey Island and yeah. didn't really have a lot of people who appreciated what he was. And so he was also available in a way that rare high-end practitioners rarely are. Yeah, and it's like so, the hidden master. Yeah, he was. And he was one of these dudes. And he also helped create the Dharma Seed Tape Library. library. Yeah. He was there at IMS in very early days. So we got to see all that stuff and just, yeah, a, a person who really deeply appreciated the depths of the Dharma and was willing to be his quirky, weird self and talk about this and break the taboos and thus transmit something very important and powerful. Is, is he, well, I was going to say, is he part of the inspiration of why you kind of um, would go out, out and talk about attainments? Oh, Yeah. But he was not one of these people who was out like all over the place talking yeah. about attainments. It was yeah. very select people. But I was like, man, this this just needs not needs to die with these old dudes who nobody knows about. Like yeah. that's just a mess. Like that, no, like that's a yeah. waste. That's a true waste of of talent and resource and the ability to help people. And what what do you think that Bill? Um, you said he was planning on write kind of writing a series of books. Uh, seven books or so that would be kind of his Dharma teaching. Um, what do you think he would that have? That was maybe... my understanding of his plan. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What do you, what do you think he would have possibly done differently? Um, say then, then mastering the core teachings of the Buddha. I don't know. I couldn't replicate bill. Yeah. Like I'm not, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Um, clearly MCTB is through my own voice and my own style. It's my own take on his tech and the tech that came out of Upandita and Mahasi and some of the you know rare backroom advanced practitioners that Bill had access to and the conversations he was a part of. So it's clearly spun through my own lens and I'm not sure I could replicate exactly what he would have done. So yeah. like I, I remember I mean people, like I remember hearing this jazz musician talking about Django Reinhardt, this great guitar player. And someone was like, well, well, show me something like what Django would do. You know, and he's like, I, I can't really quite do that. Yeah. I, can't just, I, I can't really replicate him. And in the same way, I can't replicate Bill Hamilton. And he had, yeah. he had an uncanny ability for one-liners. So like just these, the, that was one of his signature things like, you know, like enlightenment, highly recommended can't tell you why <laughs> yeah, like one of these great ones uh yeah. you know or suffering less noticing it more mm, yeah an ominous one and he, he, there are a bunch of these again we should try to convince kenneth to i i highly it. encourage you i've yeah. emailed him 
uh, you know, tweeted him. He, I, I was fortunate enough to get him. I said, he, he quoted someone and I said, I said, Kenneth, drop some Bill Hamilton quotes. And he just went on this short tirade of like maybe 10 different, really awesome um, Bill Hamilton. Yeah, they're not doing quotes. insight. They're doing psychology, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was, and I loved it, man. And, you know, I wish I, there were more resources um, to Bill Hamilton. That's, that's really why I want to create a resource, even if it's a modest one, you know, even uh, in honor of, you know, him and, and the dedication and the, and the, everything he brought to the practice and to, I guess we can say the movement, especially kind of like, he sounded like kind of like a Western attitude in a sense, but brought the wisdom of the East. And, um, you know, I also want to ask, you know, kind of, is, there's so there's there's nobody there's nowhere you can really find teachings like that today is there like from or is there well it's complicated so when you say find teachings like that um no there are people well what we've tried to do in pragmatic dharma is bring a lot of that stuff forth so actually yeah. it's vastly more available today than it was in bill's time right? yeah so people have vastly more access to that kind of attitude perspective, the fractal tech that came out of him, subjanas and subnyanas and where's that advanced resolution stuff. I mean, you know, you'll find some of that at MCTB, you'll find some yeah. of that on the Dharma overground, you'll find that in Kenneth Folk stuff, you know, and uh, other people who have been influenced by these things. So you can find some of it, but currently, as far as I know, there is no place you could like go on retreat. There's no retreat center or anything that's full on that kind of tech and attitude yet. Yeah. There, there yeah. will be. Are you, yeah, because I, I've actually been looking for a place like that, and it's been really frustrating. And yep. it's like I kind of just have to go somewhere, or or not go somewhere, and just do it on my own. Right. You know, personally, in my circumstances, better if I go somewhere. I have the three kids, so it's nice that I can just go and do the work. You know. Um, but uh, how 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 do you think Bill did it? You know, like it was just kind of thing of a Bill being Bill Hamilton or. First of all, he was just a concentration natural. The first time he ever tried to meditate to some record, he just dropped into some super deep state. So he just had something. He had a gift, no question. Second, he clearly had a tenaciousness. Like he did seven years of retreat. He would do long, hard retreats in primitive conditions in Burma and back in the day and all kinds of stuff. He, he was just, he had a tenacity about him that was just impressive. And he was driven, you know, he cared about this stuff. It, it bit deep into his something and just grabbed him. And, you know, so he became a spiritual quester and he was willing to follow whatever strange and unusual gurus and weird teachers and just crash around yeah. in the scene trying to figure out what the heck. And you can read about some of his adventures in yeah. Saints and Psychopaths. Yeah. Um, he also clearly cared more about transmitting the dharma than he cared about the taboos right even though he cared about the taboos it, you had to get him to open up he wasn't just full on open like my you know like i am he, he wasn't that something but so he's kind of this transitional figure between the one way and the other way but a foundational transitional figure without which this probably wouldn't exist in its current form yeah yeah, and again, um, please, if you can speak to Kenneth for me, I if I can even get both of you on, uh, 
to have a you know a Bill Hamilton uh, you know, in memory of Bill Hamilton episode and resource, and then I can also use that for my article. I mean, that, that, that would be fascinating. I think even just, again, in memory of him, and again, uh, maybe even kind of like a minute transmission of his tech, you know, I think even doing it in the spirit of that is empowering, you know, oh, yeah. whether if you want to say an energetic or quantum level or whatever it is, there's something there. Oh, that's a plain fact. He could transmit something you could yeah. feel it. You, I, it was obvious. He could transmit something, even sometimes when he didn't seem to want to. It was the yeah. weirdest thing. Like he couldn't help himself. Yeah. Like he, it just broke through the taboos. It broke through his reluctance. It broke through his skepticism and doubts. It broke through everything. And then he just kind of had to say stuff. Yeah. And uh, just off the cuff, is there anything that he said that stood out to you, like another quote or cool thing? Wow. Um, the most striking thing is that it could be done. The most striking thing is him speaking from the place of someone who could do it. It, it just made it real in a way that hearing people talk about the, sort of theoretically or hinting they might have done it or whatever was not the same as him just talking about what he could do. Yeah. I just found that unbelievably inspiring. It's like, okay this dude can do it. This old, weird old guy can do this. Maybe yeah. I can actually do this. Yeah. And so th that simple spirit of can be done was the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's awesome. And um, I really that hope this stuff to... works, that it's yeah. not just myth and fantasy and also a willingness to really be microphenomenologically um, empirically expansive so like he was willing to overlay additional frameworks of fractals and substages and all the stuff that you didn't find in the old text because he was able to see it and then yeah. i was able to see it and it's like oh and in the same way that mahasi in writing practical insight meditation or you know the progress of insight some of these books was willing to talk from his own experience and go outside and beyond what was just mentioned in the canon and the commentaries about some of the stage criteria and what can happen on the path, that same willingness to do that transmitted through Bill and then just got amplified by a whole lot of Western conceptual capability and freedom and innovation. And Bill was a fascinating mixture of a very strong traditionalist and powerful rebel that was going to let his own experience shine through orthodoxies and shine through in a way that was just not going to be held down, even kind of despite himself. And so that spirit coming through, I think was one of the most powerful things and certainly a profound inspiration for MCTB and my own practice. Yeah. What, what do you think it would have been like if, if Bill, you know, hadn't suffered an early release or whatever you want to call it right i'm moving on um what do you think he would have done and and how it would have changed things yeah i think his writings would have been quite profound and powerful and that we never got them um the the level of technical detail he was capable of and the um he had just been doing it so long 
you know, he also had a maturity that comes from just years and years and years of doing it. And he had come up around so many different teachings and so many different traditions, Hindu Vedanta stuff and Ram Das and Shenzhen and Zen and, you know, very influenced by Trungpa. And we would have seen a remarkable fusion of all of those from that level of technical craft and personal unbelievable competence and insight that I think would have been unprecedented in its time and still yeah. stand on its own today, not just historically as something that was a moment in time putting together the forces that, that he was had access to in the 70s and into the 80s and 90s, but also something that was beyond them because he was a person who pushed things based on incredible depth of practice. Yeah. And um, did he say, or like, did he have a way of saying like, this is how I practice or, you know, he just, how, how would he talk about how, his method of practice? Like, was he using noting? Was he using jhanas? Was he using all of it together or? Yeah, he no? was using this very complicated mix of things that was his own, you know, he had so many influences that he put together a lot of stuff and he was also willing to push and play and explore. Like he thought of like his whole project where he went on this retreat with Upandita to work on attaining Naroda Samapati, like that yeah. kind of peer pioneering reconstruction of old tech through diligent practice and trying to follow instructions and, and experimenting mode. That was just what he was. And so the willingness to explore and to even attempt to replicate the experiments in the old books just through diligence and hard work and effort and playing around and seeing what actually happened and comparing that to what it said was supposed to happen and then just keeping going with that layer upon layer, hour upon hour, you know, on and on. That was what he was. And so that spirit of just basically not taking no for an answer and saying, no, I'm going to crack this thing. That yeah. in and of itself was his most powerful gift, I think. Yeah. And I, I think you mentioned before in, in some interview of he had some kind of possible tantric genius. What what was that were you referring to? Um what was the genius of Bill? Yeah, he it's a funny way to put it. I don't know why I may have put it then, but maybe I did. Um yeah, his ability to simply transmit what he was has that that quality to it that direct Vajrayana quality to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it came through. It's funny, when I think about the words he said, like they weren't as impressive as the fact that he was saying them or the way he said them or something that came through in them. His yeah. one-liners were great. But then yeah. he, he would sometimes go into these sort of long, kind of rambly, sometimes subtly paranoid or clearly trying to hold back diatribes on various topics like what was Vajra Samadhi or what did Trunkpa mean by this or did Trunkpa actually write his books or other topics or like what was up with you know other spiritual teachers I won't name a whole lot of names or something but there was something that was coming through that was much more powerful sometimes than even the specifics so that I think was his real genius is that and that is very tantric because it was very transmissional yeah okay and um, do you think, I know I, Kenneth Falk had like a PDF that's available. I found it on Dharma Overground and he, he has some stories in there about Bill and some of the conversations, which are really cool. But um, other than saints and psychopaths, 
And then I think um, Ken Folks, the, that PDF is called um, uh, something uh, fitness. It was like um, contemplation. Fitness. Contemplational. Fitness. Yeah. Intentional yeah. fitness. Intentional fitness. Um, and uh, is were there any other kind of resources out there that had anything of Bill in them? Not that I know of. Not that I've ever found or heard of. Okay. And I guess he doesn't have any writings or anything left behind. Not that I know of. Um, yeah, not that I know like, of. All right. Yeah. yeah. You never know, right? But yeah, again, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you talking about Bill um, because there's very few people who can or even will. Um, and I, I've gone around like everybody I can think of in like the Dharma world and emailed them, messaged them, whatever you know, what do you have on Bill Hamilton? And a lot of them. If you want to, if you want to find more, you could try reaching out to some of the old IMS people. Like you could try, I don't know if Steve Armstrong or Steve Smith would know some stuff about him. Joseph Goldstein might have a few stories. I don't, I'm not sure. I yeah. think when he was there, um, I don't think they really appreciated what he was. And I think he felt himself as kind of an outcast in some ways, even though he was an insider who was there back in the day and from the beginning of that whole Western Dharma scene movement, his whole attitude was so alien to most people doing this and his capabilities put him in a class, not entirely by himself, but a very small circle of people who could do the stuff that he could do and for whom that level of depth of technical practice was a reasonable set of frameworks that would match their experience. Um, yeah. And so, you know, even though he was around then, I don't, they don't, you never hear of them really giving him his full due. And I think it wasn't until the last few years that he kind of fully came into his own, by which point he was hiding out in a trailer from the law because of, <laughs> you know, his ex running up all those charges on his American Express account or whatever. You can read about it in Saints Psychopaths. Yeah. And it was during those years that he did his last retreats. And I think it was during his last retreats that he really came into the full power and measure of what he was, by which point he was only talking to a few people and far from the major centers of insight. And then he died. Yeah. And, and Bill, like, yeah, he wasn't just kind of doing <laughs> mindfulness-based stress reduction. Like he was going for awakening, right? Oh yeah, he died. You know, I think of him as dying in our hut. Yeah, and, and so, and for most of the time I was talking with him, he was third path. I think he got it on his last retreat in Burma. Yeah, and then he got and sick. Did he talk about um, like stream entry and for second path and third path and oh yeah, all that? He would talk about that kind of stuff. Yeah, would he? Did he? Did he have like a formula for stream entry, like? He said, if you want stream entry, Daniel or Kenneth or whoever else, this is what you got to do. Well, one of the things he talked about is sort of vipassana jhanas and attention shapes and phases of attention and what you get to see with each of those and the layers of mind. He talked a lot about four foundations. He talked a lot about like um, actually the Anapanasati Sutta, which talks about breathing in, I tranquilize my body, breathing in, I have mindfulness. He emphasized yeah. that a lot, actually, like cultivating all seven factors of awakening uh, through the breath as a mindful thing. 
So simultaneously grounding attention in the breathing while cultivating positive qualities that also lead to insights. So he, and using the phrases, so he, he advocated actually a, a mix of like putting together a bunch of things in a very traditional way. Again, he was very much a traditionalist, sort of. Um, yeah, he was a traditionalist who took that traditionalism and just did something amazing with it. So, yeah. but, but he would, he would talk about stuff like that, very simple things. And, um, he also would ground it in immediacy, but he also had a super high standards. Like, you know, what is Vajra Samadhi? And he would talk about Vajra Samadhi and what is the, the Samadhi that cuts through all the illusions of stability? And how do you cut through the illusion of everything, you know, appearing stable? How do you cut through the illusion of space and consciousness? appearing stable. I mean, those are the kinds of advanced pointing things that my other insight teachers weren't doing. <laughs> yeah. And what, do you think that he, he may have learned some of that, like you said, in Burma or, or in those retreats in the East. And like you said, like back rooms. A lot of places. Or, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. also he could read because he had a pretty solid basis of experience and practice. He could read a lot of other people's teachings or listen to their talks or whatever and extract out key yeah, yeah. nuggets of gold from them and kind of highlight those. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Um, yeah. I mean, again, thank you so much for, uh, for talking about Bill Hamilton. I appreciate it. And uh, I mean, if, if I have any kind of uh, assistance or support in that kind of project, I mean, you're kind of my go-to guy, you know, even in communicating, if you can put out an email for me saying, Hey, you know, so-and-so this nobody guy is, is doing a small article project on Bill Hamilton resources. Can you help him out? Do you have any stories or anything? That would be super ultra helpful. Okay. We'll see what I can do. Yeah. And um, um, I, I kind of want to end it that I'm sorry. I've taken so much of your time. You know, I always appreciate when you come here and kick it, it kind of feels like um, 21st century Dharma Sangha, you know, like I love it, man. Uh, Bill I, was super important. You know, like, I, I, there's no yeah. way to express my full depths of gratitude for him. Yeah. And um, is there something that he he would kind of? I know he didn't talk with a lot of people, but something he would try to impress on a lot of people. Like, if he had sort of like an overall kind of message to his way or teaching or style. Wow. Um, do it. Yeah. Like, this is doable. Do it. This is doable. It's worth the time. This is doable. It's not going to be what you think it is, but um, still you should do this. Yeah. That was yeah. the other thing about him. He was willing to break with some of the traditional advertising styles that highly recommended. Can't tell you why most people would say, highly recommended because you will eliminate these, you know, defilements and you will have this thing and you will this, this, and this. And this. Yeah. He was starting to break with that. So he, he was like, yeah, highly recommended, but yeah, there's this human component to it. And actually getting to hear him like, you know, at the end when he was suffering and still, I think in somewhat denial about how long he had to live and, and all that. So I got to see the humanity of someone who at the same time had unbelievable wisdom and concentration ability, just amazing. Like, wow. Yeah. 
So yeah, I don't know. His whole his whole strange, quirky life was in some ways the teaching as well. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And um uh, both you know, suffering and the end of suffering. His life demonstrated both in abundance. Yeah. Yeah. So um again, this is kind of like an in memory to to Bill Hamilton and um, I'm really looking forward to putting together that project because it's almost like a small journey for myself, you know, to hopefully grasp even the tiniest um, bit of insight or transmission, you know, and I, and, you know, I can't, I've never spoken to him. I, I can't say this, but I, I just, the way I feel, I feel that what you're doing brings forward the spirit of what he, he was teaching and stuff based on what I heard from him, you know, about him and his style. And um, I think there's something there. So I think that, you know, what you did with um, mastering the core teachings of the Buddha is incredibly important. Thanks. Um, I try. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. I wish he had been able to do it. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. So, yeah. And um, again, I've, I've taken a lot of your time and I'm sorry. I appreciate you coming on though um it's again it's an honor always yeah it's been uh, delightful just, thank you so much for yeah. uh, helping to bring these things forward in any way yeah. so yeah yeah and for anybody else and i i, I really you're a stand-up guy man i you know i've <laughs> thanks no and really yeah, you, I, you know i i'm kind of in the drama world in not because it's like there's this circle and it's like you know people aren't as friendly as you would assume they are and it's, it's yeah, a silly right? thing what is up with that it's a silly thing, but it's like, it, it irks me. So yep. like even people know I was, or some people might, might know some people, not, I'm kind of like involved in other subjects. And when I see something like that, I, I, I don't, I don't appreciate it, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I understand there's human things to it and, and whatever, but you know, for, for me, you've been somebody that is um, walking the walk, you know, not just, saying these nice things but you in in my opinion embody what what that teaching is like you've come and freely speak um and and you know spread the dharma or the work or whatever you want to call it you know without you know putting these kind of religious underpinnings on it you know um so i i, I really appreciate that you know i think it's it's an honor and a pleasure to, to be able to sit here and talk with you well, thanks. We're all learning. I mean, I always haven't always been the nicest on the internet either, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're, yeah. All, we're all trying to figure out how to do this in this new digital world, these technologies. We're all wrestling with all these sides of ourselves. We're wrestling with the parts of the traditions that we love and the way we think they should be presented and the things that, you know, we care about. I get it. You know, I understand yeah. why the, the daggers come out sometimes, you know, I've yeah. been there, I get it, maybe there again. You know, yeah. normalize, <laughs> bring it down to earth a little bit. So, but yeah, hopefully we can all try and do better uh, and still preserve the valuable things in a way that isn't vicious. Yeah. And again, yeah, I appreciate you, you know, taking your time to talk with me when I, you know, I've tried to talk to some other people and they're kind of just like, yeah, well, you know, maybe sometimes. Um, but uh, as a parting message or advice to people, what would, what would Daniel Ingram say? Would um. Yeah, what I say, goodness gracious, this stuff is doable. It's not like you think it will probably be. It's more straightforward and human than you think it will be. If you're using maps, use the maps to focus on the here and now 
and keep your wits about you and try to be a decent person in the face of this stuff. I don't know. It sounds cheesy, but that's, that is what yeah. I would say. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, personally for me, that part is, is a core central aspect to it. I mean, that's just been my own path. Right. Um, I don't know. Cause I mean, I think that some of the insights that you um, realize are some of the, you know, they are fundamental to the kind of even morality and other stuff. And I think that, so you don't, you don't just have the insights, you implement them. You know, trying to, I I think we're all trying in our own ways. If you look at even the people who, you know, clearly um, they're on what I'll call the dedicated opposition. Like there's a lot of good people, a lot of people have reasonable perspectives and they just love what they love and they love the way they think it should be presented. And, and okay. We'll all try to be forgiving of each other if we possibly can be. Yeah, <laughs> you know, while being true to ourselves. So that's the, yeah, it's the tricky balance. Yeah, and just just for the end, um, where can people find your work and your book and and EPRC? So the book is free at mctb.org and at www.firecasina.org. You can other, find another book and a whole bunch of other audio recordings and resources I did with Shannon Stein and a whole bunch of other great fire casino practitioners. You can find my main website at integrateddaniel.info and you can find the EPRC at theeprc.org. And so, yeah, enjoy. Yeah. Again, you know, thank you so much, Daniel. I hope you have an awesome day and uh, I hope to Thanks, have you, you on too. again soon. And, uh, I'll, I'll speak to you soon. Cool. All right. Take care. Bye.